You're listening to The Right Women Podcast, a platform created for Black Caribbean female writers and authors who audio scribe their origin stories and their journeys to authorship. I'm your host and storyteller, Empress Zynga. Chapter 6 A.L. Don French from St. Lucia. A prolific writer, A.L. Don French has had her work featured locally, regionally, and internationally since her pre-teen years. She has been part of publications such as Creation of Fire in 1990, published by the Caribbean Association for Feminist Research and Action, also known as CAFRA, Women's Future 2000, published by the United Nations Development Fund for Women, Opus Spectrum 2015, published by the St. Lucia Writers Forum and the Directory of Caribbean and Afro-Latin American Biography 2016, published by Oxford University Press. Her latest works are about an eight-year-old heroine named Peanut, who, through her adventures, shares morality tales with pre-teen readers. Dawn French from St. Lucia. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Right Women podcast. I am your host, Empress Zynga. This week, guys, I travel digitally to St. Lucia to speak with an author, Dawn French. Um, I'm very excited to speak with her on some of the (laughs) books she has written. I laugh because I don't want to let go anything just yet. There's one particular thing that I want to talk about and I'm very excited to get to. But before I jump the gun, Dawn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, first off, tell us about yourself. I always open up the podcast and I ask persons, um, how did they become right women? (laughs) W-R-I-T-E. Well, you know, um, it's something I've, I've, I've spoken about to fellow writers. You know, you have a talent, whether it's dance, music, writing, and it just is. You, you don't wake up at 16 and say, oh, I'm going to start writing. It's something that has always been with you. You know, you're a black woman and you were born black. Yes. Um, you know, you're a white woman, you were born white. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we are born writers. And, and my earliest memory of, of doodling with pen and paper was about, I was six years old. Mm. And um, we have a newspaper here, a very old newspaper established in the 1800s called The Voice of St. Lucia. Mm -hmm. And back then they would publish the poems of children and it's something they still do. Mm. And I applaud them every opportunity I get because I I always say they, I don't know if they understand what what a child feels when they see the little two lines in print in the newspaper. Mm. <laughs> and so that was my early experience with with writers so uh, I've been writing if you want to you know categorize it that way I've been writing for a long time okay now you have uh, a book out entitled the history of St. Lucia and it is quoted as a history of St. Lucia and it is the first ever detailed and comprehensive oh, that, that was not done by me. That was done by Robert DeVoe, Jolene Hampson, and Guy Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not part of that project. Okay, okay. What, what, what I have is something called um, St. Lucia Up to Now, mm-hmm. which is 
like it's like a diary, it's a date book of okay. of events. And um, I, you know, back in the day, I gave the National Archives a copy. And um, what they use it for now is like an index to their collection. They say wow. to me, anytime someone comes to do research, they drop that tomb in front of them. Wow. Because it's, you know, it's like an index. It, yes. it gives as much as possible dates and times of when things happen. But I was not involved in the history of St. Lucia, which is, I should just give a plug for my colleagues, is available, <laughs> available on Amazon. <laughs> yes. Um, what were some of the discoveries you made while doing that index? Um... You know, a lot of stuff happens, um, gruesome stuff, happy stuff, you know, the full spectrum of, of what makes up a country. Mm. And I don't think there's any one thing that really sticks in my mind. But what I realize is that, um, and it's happening to me now, is that what is, you know, dry history for someone is a memory for someone else. Yes. Um, the way my mother relates to what I got taught as a child. Um, it's just dry historic fact for me. But when my mother speaks about it, you know, she experienced it, she was there. And as I get older, that is happening to me with the next generation because it's just dry, dusty facts for them, but it's stuff that I lived through. Yes. And so it's, it's interesting to see how the generations relate to, you know, a constant, which is a historic fact. Mm. What I also wanted to touch on, um, since you, some of your work, um, deals with that, the history of St. Lucia, and as you say, the memories um, mm -hmm. by extension. I remember the country of St. Lucia having a horrible fire um, where they lost a lot of documentation. Um, oh, fire. Yes. Um, how how is, is the recovery process still ongoing? Are there any challenges in terms of rebuilding? Because I, I can't begin to think, especially from somebody from Barbados, to lose such treasures such as those. Okay, so I think what you're referring to is the fire at the Folk Research Center. Yes. Um, because the Castries fire was, a, was another kettle of fish altogether. That was okay. um, 1948. And of course, by now, we've, infrastructurally, we've recovered completely from that. But what is interesting is that because of our dual um, Anglo-Franco heritage, mm -hmm. um, you know, th there's been a lot of influence there. And recently, the government has had a program, and I say recently, the last three to four or five years, mm -hmm. of trying to rationalize people's documentation, their birth certificates, their passports, etc. And it's a mm -hmm. kind of ways. And a lot of it is because we lost our civic registry in the 1948 fire. So some people cannot go beyond 1948 if they do no genealogy. Oh, wow. Have, they have great difficulty um, going beyond 1948 when they're doing their genealogy. But the Folk Research Center fire was, an, was something else completely. Um, wow. I mean, I don't know if we will ever understand emotionally what we have lost. Hmm. We had um, a gentleman called Harold Simmons, who back in the day mentored Derek Walcott, um, who you know is a Nobel laureate winner, um, Dunstan Sentome, who designed the flag of St. Lucia, another gentleman called Spa St. Helen, who was a, a, a fantastic photographer. These are the three young men at the time that Harold Simmons mentored. Mm -hmm. And there were paintings at the FRC by Harold Simmons that could not be found anywhere else. The family loaned it to the FRC and it went up in the fire. 
Oh, no. um, we had we had um, the, the the FRC um, has been around for maybe 30 40 years I, I uh, you know attribute them you know, a lot of the work they did to save the Creole language in St. Lucia mm -hmm. there are a lot of interviews video and audio that they had done if people who are long dead mm -hmm. all that up in the flames oh no and and the irony is that some of the things that survived the flames were, were the clay pots you know the clay uh -huh. pots they just make out of the dirt that we walk on. Yes. Because because of the process of firing them. Yes. The fire went up. I mean, it's it almost become like a symbol of the phoenix for us. You have this picture that goes on on social media of this clay pot in the ash. Yes. That's fire. So a lot, a lot of people have, you know, donated their thesis to, to the FRC to hold on to for, for next generation of researchers. You know, all that went up. Oh my. you know it's 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 it when you stop to think of it you know some people still some people cry literally tears come down our face i could imagine you know, that night when you just stay down in castries and you look up the hill and you see that fire on the hill i mean it's just it's yes it's, it's a it's a hole in, so, in the culture of saint lucia i guess for my question would be in terms of all of these connection of words, as you mentioned, thesis and, and different types of documentation, um, weren't there, I don't know, safety mechanisms for like microfilm or digitizing for like a cloud or something that could have been backed up? They were in the, but you see, how, how do you back up a painting? How do you pack, back up, um, you know, there were things inside, they're all sewing machines. The old irons you used to put on the coal pot. I see, I see. You know, the, and I, I, I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, <laughs> people used to sit by the side of the road with the hot comb. Everybody cold pressed Yes, out. yes. Back in the day, it was the hot comb in the coal pot. Yes. You know, how do you replicate that? How, how do you digitize that, you know? Um, yes. You may take a photo of it. Mm-hmm. Items. But it's not the same thing. Exactly. And, you know, there was an instant move by people to start, you know, <laughs> digging under their beds and in the top of the attic and cupboard to see what stuff that they have that we can donate to start the collection back. Yes. But, you know, it's going to take us decades to get back where we were that night that fire happened. Mm. Well, um, you were also a winner of the 2014 National Arts Festival. People's Choice Award for Nonfiction, and we speak a lot about the community aspect within that fire. But how did it feel being recognized by the community? It's always nice to be recognized. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I um, I'm in a phase of writing fiction at the moment, but at the time I was in a phase of writing a lot of nonfiction. And, yes. and you know, people would say, why are you bothering? People don't read and stuff. And, and, and we had an, um, an Irish-born priest here a long time ago called um, Father Jess. Mm -hmm. He wrote the lyrics for the national anthem for St. Lucia. He was an Irishman. Eventually, he took St. Lucian national um, citizenship. Yes. And he wrote a lot of stuff in, in the 1960s, 1950s and 1960s about the history of St. Lucia. And I tell people, if it wasn't for Father Jesse, we would not know a lot of things about St. Lucia. Mm -hmm. And so even though this generation we perceive may not be interested in what I'm doing, um, I put copies at the National Archives and, and it's available online. And one day when someone is interested, I will be the father just of my generation and it will be there for persons. So, you know, it wasn't really, I mean, it was nice to be recognized, but that was not why I did it. Mm -hmm. I was really 
doing it for the history of my country to to document it because you start doing the research and and there's a lot of gaps in the information and so luckily there's still a few people alive who can who I mean they're dying fast yes but they're around that I can still reach out and interview and, and get the gap and I'm saying 50 75 100 years from now if I am having that difficulty to get that information what is the researcher of the future going to face mm. so that was just my little way of of adding to the information of St. Lucia. But it was nice to be acknowledged. <laughs> As a researcher, what are some of the stories that you have come across um, that you think more attention should be placed on? It's, um, we have a phrase in St. Lucia that we like to use called a dead hero society. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it bothers me a lot that we don't know who our people are. We have schools in this country named for people and you walk into the school and the teachers and the principal don't have a clue of who the school was named for. Mm. Um, we have, you know, you, you, you break down the children into four houses so that they can do the competitions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you ask a child, you know, what's the name of the house you're in? And they know the name of the house. And well, who is that person? And they don't know. Mm. And, but you know, kids are gypsies, so they go back to school and they ask the, the teacher, and they and they tell me, Miss, they don't, the teacher don't know. Oh wow! And so, as I said, there is a gap, and if if I could find a way to 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 do the research to fill that gap, because I believe we can address that dead hero society phrase that we like mm-hmm. if we just start in the school. It's too much to ask children to know about everybody in the in the society who has gone forward. But at least the four people in the the five, you know, the four mm-hmm. houses and the school is named for someone. Why? Who are they? Mm-hmm. So that that is going to call it a pet peeve. <laughs> um, it is something that concerns me that that because of the family I grew up in, I know some of the people. I know who they are. Um, some of them went to school with my family, so I know some of the historic characters. Some of the people who have made history in Saint Lucia are actually from my own family. When I pick up a history book and it talks about Saint Lucians, I look to see if I've got family in the book. Mm. And so I come from a different perspective, maybe from the average person. Mm-hmm. But it hits yeah. harder to home. Yes, that people don't know. You know, we have we had a governor general die a few years ago, and people did were asking who is that, and I'm saying, what? my God, I'm saying, my God, that we have a li- okay. He kept a very low profile because he wasn't feeling well. You know, he was ill, um, and I think the illness finally claimed him. And I thought. You know, he's a governor from a governor general. How are you yes. asking me who is this? Yes, yes. Um, so that is, I don't know for Barbados, but this is this is what it is in St. Lucia. Um, similar, similar aspects. Um, I'm always, I, my favorite writer and poet of all time is Kamal Brathwaite. So right. I, I have spoken to him numerous times. Um, I've also spoken to his wife as well. Just asking for advice and even with the new book and getting advice on my new book and everything. And he was more than open. But, you know, writers are very into themselves. They're very introverted as well as his own backstory with what has happened to him within his life. He has chosen to be a little bit more recluse and away from people. Yeah. Uh, so when I go to teach, sometimes I also have that conversation with younger students because obviously they won't know who these people are, um, especially those who are not into poetry. You know, right. when you go to children and you ask them, um, do you like poetry? Or even if do you like reading? Uh, it's always a, a tug 
to get their attention, to get them to at least appreciate what it is, not just to be immersed and become a poet next year or the next 10 years, but at least for them to have an appreciation of what that dynamic is and what the stories within the poetry mean. Um, how important is storytelling for you as a writer? Um, but I think in story, it's, it's, it's pretty easy for me to, to lay down a story. Um, but just to go back a bit on, or before we move to the story thing, um, because of the gap in, in, in the profiles of, of, of knowing who St. Lucians are, that's why I went into a mode of writing a lot of nonfiction for a while, because I was deep into writing short biographies of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't looking for the, you know, 600 page document. I was just looking to capture, you know, the, in the basic information that someone could then build on. So I had a whole slew of profiles of people that I perceived that, you know, folks didn't know about or should know about. Yes. Um, but for the storytelling, you know, storytelling is, is what Caribbean people do. Yeah. <laughs> you get on the bus and you hear a story. You, you might know? not even know the other person. You know, and, and especially, and you know, in St. Lucia, it comes on in Creole. Yes. Um, I remember when I would go to school on the bus and, you know, the, the, the story of the night before would be coming down the pipeline. And then some people would suddenly say, you know, in the whole conversation in Creole saying, you know, the children on board the bus. And, you know, but I want to hear the story. So yeah. I'm just out the window pretending I'm not hearing. <laughs> but stories is what we do in the Caribbean. And so to, and whatever strata it is, because I noticed that a lot of people like to write about um, lower income, the lower income bracket mm-hmm. uh, of society, that, that struggle that comes with that. But I don't write that, that level. I write more of a middle class I have I mean I have friends high low and in between mm-hmm. but I'm more comfortable writing the midway mm-hmm. um, and it may not be too popular with the you know the, the critics but that, that's the stories I write I write a lot of children's um, book for children yes um, and in doing the research for them I learn a lot as well and um, and this I have lots of photos and you know they all their nose is always in one of these peanut stories that I write mm-hmm. um, the, the, the character is called peanut Yes. And so um, th- that's where I am at the moment, writing a lot of stuff for, for the young gen- for the next generation, the young readers. And, you know, people who have that whole thing about kids don't read, um, they do. And I tell people, children read what interests them. Yeah. And, and they may not have the hard copy old school book in their hand, although I begin to see reports coming out of the Guardian newspaper out of England saying that more and more children are moving away from the electronic devices, the... the, the yeah, the the analysis of of um, what has sold that the, the the trends of books being sold in in England is showing that children are moving back towards old school books to mm-hmm. hold in their hand. But children read, they do, and boys read. I know we have this thing, in particular, that boys don't yeah. like to read. But boys <laughs> read what will interest them. You know, boys are not interested in Barbie. So you cannot give a boy a girl's book or vice versa. Yeah, you have to tell them stories that they can relate to representation. To, as with anything you are writing, be it fiction or nonfiction, you must understand your audience. Mm-hmm. And um, so I do a lot of stuff for kids at the moment. Now you've mentioned Peanut Family Tree here, which is one of the uh, yes. <laughs> the things that I want to touch on. This right. series you said has 67 books is that well, at the, time I did, the time i did the interview yes 67 where is it now how how many more 
No, I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> the number is embarrassing. It's ridiculous. It's a runaway train. It's a little, it's a little over 200 titles now. 200. Wow. But they're, they're not all available online. I just write them and store them there on, on the Okay. Page. So some are, are, are some published are and some are still in manuscript form, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um... <sighs> That is a lot of work, though, like to, especially as somebody who wants to become a children's author, mm-hmm. who's, to hear somebody who, who's kind of like an Enid Blayhan of the Caribbean, 67 books in a series is a lot for uh, a children's writer um, in this short space of time, because I, I think when I researched this, this was only like, well, last year? I know you're telling me now it's almost a mass 200. So how we get there, ma'am? Please tell me the details. <laughs> okay. Well, it started, um, you can blame the University of the West Indies. <laughs> <laughs> the open campus in St. Lucia with sponsorship from the government and people of Canada ran a creative writing course here, I think it was 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, it did um, prose, poetry, and playwriting. And I really wanted to know about the playwriting. Mm. And, so, and so I signed up. And the first assignment was the prose to write a story. Now, I am the former director of the National Emergency Management Organization in St. Lucia. Mm-hmm. And I got deployed into Haiti when they had um, Hurricane Matthew. Okay. But my assignment was due. Mm. And so Open Campus, they, they know me. So they let me go, you know, pledge that I would have my assignment back in time. And, and so went to Haiti with no idea what I was writing. Mm. And I tell people, you know, when you're on response, your adrenaline is, is up, your metabolism is up, you munch all the time. Mm. And so I went with a big bottle of peanuts. And the night we were waiting for the, the commander to brief us, I was in the hotel lobby with this big bottle of peanuts to share with my colleagues. And I thought, I'm going to call this character Peanut. Mm-hmm. And the first one I did was Peanut and the Storm, because I'm a disaster manager. I'm in Haiti for a hurricane. Yeah. And so my, my whole thing was about how do you introduce children to prepare for a hurricane, explain to them what a hurricane is. Mm-hmm. And that was my class assignment. Yeah. Peanut's family tree was the second one. Um, because at the time, the National Reparations Committee in St. Lucia was going around to secondary schools, talking to them about reparations. But in my mind, I'm asking myself, how do you explain reparations, repatriation, and everything that goes with it, slavery, emancipation, the whole kit and kabuto? How do you explain this to eight-year-olds? Because the target for peanut is eight to 12-year-olds. And so I did Peanuts Family Tree to target that age group, to explain to them what this whole movement is about. And that's what Peanuts Family Tree is about. Mm-hmm. Really, I tell you, you know, it's, it's always about informing the child within the story. Yes. Um, I presented it to the committee here. They like it. And, and um, the governor general at the time was Dame Paulette Louise. Really liked it. The present one, um, Sir Neville, likes it as well. Um, I think the committee has shown it to the to CARICOM and um, the chairman here is working to see if he can get some sponsorship so that we can print it and give it to the kids in the school. Beautiful. So each peanut story, you know, is within our context and of, of explaining to kids stuff and very often you explain it to me too. But <laughs> um, you know, the one I like to cite is when peanuts and the spiders. I did not know spiders had blue blood. Oh, 
Exactly. Oh, you me as well. <laughs> exactly. So there's always something in there to that that you know that piques the interest of the of the child, and and then there are a few coloring books as well um, that they can color. But there's always the story with the information in the text. Mm -hmm. So that is essentially. And then of course it just got really ridiculous and out of control because then my friends start to say, "Don't make Peanut do this and don't make <laughs> him do that," and so it just went from there, talking about a whole plethora of things. Why do you think there is a lack of writers or ratings for children of that age group? I know there may be some writers and some emerging writers, but the level of where we could be isn't there just yet. Why do you think that people aren't creating stories and I should say Caribbean stories for children of Caribbean culture? That's a very good question. I, I... Because you know, usually you see erotica or sex well, poetry or whatever, but nobody does. I, I do that too. You know, it's interesting because what began to emerge in the peanut stories, because she's got five friends. So there are three boys, three girls, you know, all Caribbean children, running the full gauntlet of what the, the racial profile of the Caribbean is. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this little boy, he likes her and she doesn't like him so much. And so I thought, you know, I need to resolve what I'm perceiving comes out of the story. So I leapfrogged them a couple of years and I wrote about them as adults. And, you know, I gave it to my friends. I always give it to people to read. So I okay. give the peanut stories to right now. I'm waiting for a friend of mine to tell me her son is, his schedule will allow him to look at what I'm working on at the moment. Um, so they give me the feedback and children are really raw with their feedback. So if they don't like it. They, you know, tell you. no diplomatic skills whatsoever. They just tell it to you raw and I love it. Mm -hmm. But when I did the adult version, um, my adult friend said, you know, well, you know, beef up the thing a bit, saucy it up a bit, you know. And when I did, everybody started fanning and I said, but you asked for the sex, so what is your problem, you know. So I do the full spectrum as well. But I think maybe people find it easier to write. It's not always easy to write for children. If you are 40, 50, 60, you know, it's a long time since you were 10. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a particular Children speak a particular way and you have to understand that the, the dialogue, the way you would write, um, even if it's, you know, sanitized, the way you would write, um, you know, a murder mystery for, for an adult yes. is not the way you would write one for a child. Yes. And so not everybody has that. And when I first started writing, when I first started writing the peanut stories, I did a lot of consultation with children. Mm. Um, a lot. I mean, I would go into school sometimes and get a whole classroom to give me feedback. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've done a few now, so I think I pretty much got it. But every now and then, I'll still default to going back. As I said, this morning, I'm waiting for my friend to tell me, you know, when her nine-year-old has time to look at this one for me because mm -hmm. they're on school holidays. Um, but you always, I always go back to my audience, be it children or adults. And so it, it's just a matter, I suppose, of where the comfort zone is. Um, I have friends who like to write about the ghetto life. Mm -hmm. um, that's where they're comfortable writing their stories. Yeah. So you know, why, why force the issue? But I'm not sure how many people out there are actually writing in the Caribbean for children. Um, I know that, I don't know if you know, heard that in St. Lucia, we want to establish two schools of excellence, one for sports and one for the arts. Beautiful. And someone in the Ministry of Education had reached out to me because they wanted to start um, the work with the children at the primary school level because the school of excellence are going to be secondary schools. 
but you cannot start at the secondary school. You have to prep the children so that when they do the common entrance, they yeah. know what school they and, and, you know, but there's a lot of material for kids at the secondary school level. They're pulling their hair out for material at, for children okay. at the um, okay. primary school level. And so they reached out to me um, and we have having some limited discussions about, you know, how we, the writers, um, can help them with material that they can use at that level. Mm. It's easy. It's easy to just reach out for the, for the secondary schools. It's not that easy for the primary. So you're right. Mm. Well, between 67 to slash 200, over 200 <laughs> books, um, some of these stories would have come from your childhood as well. Um, yes. Little pockets and bits and pieces of them because it's a lot yes. of stories, a lot of content. Yes, yes. Some of a lot of actually the other day I took a look about twenty of them triggered by press releases, news items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so there was one where the chief education officer here was um, lamenting the abuse of um, alcohol and cigarettes in school. Yes. So I had Peanut and her friends get a hold of it and to show just how easy it is for the kids to get hold of it and then have a drunken binge at the back of the school. Oh wow you know, pass out cold. And then the whole reaction of her parents of how they handled this, this, this situation. Mm. Yeah. So as I said, some of them get triggered by what happens in the news. Sometimes my friends reach out. I, I was working on one, um, peanuts and the runaway because we have a lot of runaways in St. Lucia. Oh, wow. and, and and I got stuck. So it just sat there for about a year. And then I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about these two children who walked how many miles from their home to the teacher's house because there was no one in the home for how many days and the children went looking for the teacher to help them. And I thought, ah, I've got the ending for my story. Mm -hmm. And I just wove it into what I had been working on how many months before and completed the story. So yes, some of it gets gets triggered by by real events, not only from me, but from from people, from other people. So yeah. then, as a writer, then especially if somebody who wants to go down this road as well for writing for for children and having the courage to talk about topics that people may want to share away from because oh, they're children, they're not ready for that conversation, they're not ready yeah. for that discussion. It's more so about being aware about what is really happening within your community so you can more or less back it up like yeah we you don't want to talk about this but it's happening so in order for us to find a solution and get to those children we need to write about these these issues you know Mm -hmm. in an age-appropriate way but you you have to you have to speak on them and especially something like a topic with runaways as well as reparations i don't think i've ever heard any writer not even in Barbados but in the Caribbean um writing a story for our children about reparations and what that means and really trying to open up discussions not only amongst the adults but amongst the children let them ask questions so that they can be aware and be more informed about what is going on in their space Whenever I do um, one that's medically themed, I turn to my doctor friends to check it. So, you know, we've done Alzheimer's, we've done dyslexia, we've done diabetes, Mm -hmm. um, um, epilepsy, you know, and it's all, you know, correct. Because I remember I have a friend of mine who's got a precocious, she's she's about four now, but when she was two, um, I had done peanuts on the farm. 
because I wanted to explain to children that food does not come from a supermarket shelf. Yes. It comes from a farm and these are the animals and these are the sounds they make. Mm -hmm. And she, she called me, she said to me that she and her husband were driving home and, and the little girl saw the cow when they were driving by and she goes, mommy, mommy, there's the cow. Do you know you don't get milk from a boy cow? <laughs> that was like straight from the story. And I thought, wow, you know, you it's just have this it's not just that you know the, the gratification of the feedback but it's just the responsibility of knowing that you need to get this information correct because the children are absorbing it yes so once i'm doing something i did something recently um the integrity commission i, I, I use peanut to explain what the integrity commission is and why you have to do it and why adults have to do it and what the law is and you know broke it down for kids and I and I went into the office and I said to them here's the script I need you all to fact check it for me the legal officer gave me some corrections I made the corrections and when I was done I gave them a copy as, as a thank you and the board loves it so much that they said to me if they get funding they're going to print it to put it to give to kids oh that's so beautiful just that no topic is is out of bounds I mean we've done the sex talk mm -hmm. peanut and her parents have had to do the birds and the bees talk yes um, so, you know, no topic is, is out of bounds once yeah. it can be broken down for the children. Uh, uh, you know, and then to a full circle, I, I worked with the UE Open Campus to assist the University of the West Indies to explain to children this whole Aedes aegypti and, you know, what the mosquito is and how it carries and, you know, and, and you know, you learn a lot because it's the female mosquito that's doing all the damage. Yes. It makes the noise. She needs the blood. She's the one carrying the diseases. <laughs> the male just seems to be there to eat fruit and multiply. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I gave it back to them and, and the professors were happy with it. So, you know, Peanut, that's why, that's why there are so many titles. And now a short sample, Peanut and the Homeless Man, a story about friendship by A.L. Don French. Music lessons were over and Peanut with her friend English sat on the wall outside the music school waiting for her 12-year-old brother Sebastian to join them. The three were supposed to walk home together. The tiny 8-year-old girl Peanut had gotten the nickname when Daddy Max, her paternal grandfather, had named her such. As he put it, she was as small as a Peanut when she was born. Her true name was Sabine, but that was only used when Peanut found herself in trouble. Her friend English was an eight-year-old boy, and his proper name was Alexander, but everyone called him English because he used to have an English accent. He's forgotten us, English said. It looks that way, Peanut had to agree. Now what? My phone has no service. Neither does mine. English double-checked his cell phone. So we walk, she suggested. English nodded grimly and jumped off the wall. Peanut did the same. It was only after five o'clock, but since it was Christmas time, the place was already dark and the school was over, so the place was also deserted. The two eight-year-olds, hand in hand, started to walk. Yo, where are you two off to all alone? A voice hailed them. They turned and saw a scruffy, dirty, homeless man. English, Peanut whispered. English was bigger than Peanut, so he stood between the small girl and the homeless man. 
The man walked up to them. "We're going home," English said. "Alone?" the man demanded. When they nodded, he said, "I'm coming with you." He held up his hand to stop any objection. "You too small to be alone on the road. You walk in front, I'll follow." And that is exactly what the three did. As they reached the end of the road, they were met by Peanut's worried father. Bass came home and forgot you all. It's okay, boss man. They're safe. The hobo said. Who are you? Sheldon asked. Everyone calls me EMT. I used to be a EMT, but not anymore. The man explained. EMT. It's me, SJ. The two men stared at each other. That's my daughter, SJ. Oh my God! MT was just as surprised. Look, hold this and come and check me tomorrow. Sheldon offered him some money. MT hesitated. I take it and come and see me. We need to talk, catch up, and work a plan. Sheldon did not need to say what he meant. Even Pina understood that her father wanted to help his friend. EMT nodded, accepted the money, and walked away. What's an EMT? English asks. Emergency medical technician. They provide basic emergency services in all sorts of situations. Sheldon explained. Wow! Imagine. Your friend EMT was our guardian. English said, "What will you do if he doesn't come to see you?" Peanut asked. Then, we go look for him. Sheldon was firm. If you are really someone's friend, then you help them. A friend is a person you may not see for years, but the moment you need help, they are there with no questions asked. I was at school with EMT. And I'm going to help him, so he had better show up tomorrow. We are going to help him," Peanut corrected. "Yeah, we are," English agreed. Sheldon turned the car around, and they drove away. This expanded story with more Peanut tales available at www.amazon.com/author/dawnbooks. This story was inspired by how a homeless man's selfless act changed his life. In the New York Post, dated November twenty third, two thousand and seventeen. You are doing such a fantastic job with being an educator for children as it relates to books. Like I can't even begin to imagine the responsibility that you would have to have and. To do the research, the the correct research, so that the right information goes to these young minds.、Mm-hmm. What does it is necessary? What does being a successful writer or author look like to you? What does a successful author or writer look like to me? Yes. For me, it's it's the kids. Um, we do reading month here in May,、mm-hmm. and and I went to school. I did Peanut and the Monster, which was about gender violence. Okay,、um, you know, and when I was finished the story, I got feedback on two levels.、Um, the kids gave me a million percent 
um, grade and I was, I was happy for my million percent grade. <laughs> but the teachers came up to me afterwards and said, Miss French, I'm really glad you did that story with them because there are children in that group who are going through what you are talking about in that story mm. and you have now shown them how to handle it. Mm. So I got it, you know, got, and, and, and that's always gratifying to get that feedback. I love watching the kids react when, you know, you give it to them and, and, and they dive down into it. Um, you know, as part of reading month, um, seven, five, eight books, which is the bookshop in St. Lucia because seven, five, eight is the area code for St. Yeah. Lucia. Um, we, we did something for mother's day and, um, this is Francois who runs the bookshop asked me to donate a couple of peanut stories as door prizes. Oh, wow. And then Sent me the photos of the children, you know, and there were two boys. I mean, you should have seen them with the books, posing, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and then when the Ministry of Education launched Reading Month, they, we also did some door prizes in the books as well. And, and I have pictures of the kids because as soon as they got it, they opened it up to see what was inside there. Mm-hmm. So I love the reaction. And, and once I'm doing, once I'm getting that, you know, sometimes the adults uh, and, you know, I say, hey, you're not the audience. All right. So I thank you for the feedback. But if your child tells me something different, I'm going with your child and not your opinion. Oh, I agree. Because yeah, that's who you're marketing to anyway. But not only that, as I said to a while ago, they have no diplomatic skills at yeah. that age. Yeah. If they don't like it, you know, I give it to the You're kids. You're going to find out. When I give it to the kids, um, the parents said to me, so what do you want? I said, I have two questions. One, do they like it? If they like it, fine, we're done. If they do not like it, I want them to tell me why. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I need to fix it. And I tell them when I go into schools as well, you need to tell me why I need to fix this story because when I go to the next school, I have to make it better. So you now release them from any inhibitions they may have had yes. um, to give you that feedback. And, you know, once they give it, I make the corrections. Hmm. If, there was, if there was any advice <clears throat> to be a successful published writer, what would be that advice you would give to anybody listening? Right. First of all, people come and say, you know, I want, I have this book. I say, just write, you know, the, the format of the book, the grammar and the spelling that will come later. Just get the idea down. But then you have to realize that that's just 1%. <laughs> Writing it is 1%. You have to let people, I don't know if you want to call it marketing for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, for people to know that you have this product because you may put it on an online publisher. Um, the most dominant of course is, is Amazon, but there's X libraries and Lulu as well. Mm-hmm. There are other um, businesses online that support um, self-publishing, but they don't market for you. Now, if you're with a traditional publisher, they will help you with the marketing, but yeah. the self-publishing, you will not get the marketing. Marketing falls to you. So it doesn't make sense. You put all this effort into writing, you get it printed, you have it on the shelf and what? It's not going to walk out the door for you. So a lot of the heavy lifting comes after you have written the book. After you've gotten someone to read it and tell you, you know, if it's good, bad or indifferent, where you might need to fix, you've got the spelling correct, the editing how you want, you've designed the cover. If it's a book for children and it has to be full of pictures. Once you get all that done, now what? You know, you've given birth. Now you have to raise it. Yeah. You have to get the word out there. And and printing in the Caribbean is an expensive endeavor. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> I, do, I do what's called print-on-demand, which is the same model that you have online. Yeah. Um, so when someone wants it is when I print it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of friends who have, you know, printed a couple of hundred books and they still have, you know, significant number on their hands. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah. Um, I've also but- heard that Amazon does printing for you as well. Um, I guess it goes along with the same printing on demand as well for anybody. It's, print on demand. it's a virtual library. It's yeah. A virtual library. So they keep the file and, you know, whether you have it for your um, electronic reader or you want a hard copy, when you place the order is when the product is produced. Yeah. Yes. And of course they will do whatever quantity that you want. Hmm. Well, before we go, I always ask uh, authors to let me know if there are three books that they would give to anybody here out here in uh, podcast land. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What three books, fiction or nonfiction, you would suggest? They have to to be available online? Um, No, they don't. You can can outsource them. Okay. Um, well, I have a book by a friend of mine called June Frederick, and the, the book is called Pitsi Konupiti. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a chant from our masquerade at Christmas. Okay. Um, and it really means little as we little, but it teaches children um, the traditions, the, the, the um, Christmas traditions of St. Lucia. It's, got, it's interactive. It's got a DVD. Mm-hmm. It's got pages for, for activities and coloring, etc. Um, and so it, it will be available in Trinidad at Carifesta. For f- folks who are going to be there, you can awesome. go to private books and you can get. Um, maybe I should plug myself too. Um, yes. I'm going to have stuff at 758 as well. A um, couple of peanut tails will be available at 758. And then um, if I go nonfiction, then we just had, I have to say a tomb. Let's see. I went and got it off my shelf. Let's see how many pages um, it's got. Almost 800 pages. Um, It's written by Calix George. Mm -hmm. And it's called St. Mary's College, the Caribbean's Nobel Laureate School. Because Derek Walcott and Arthur Lewis went, their secondary school, the alma mater is St. Mary's College. Um, It it speaks about the formation of the college and a lot of the alumni and, you know, a lot of um, high-ranking, important, historic, um, impacting people have come out of St. Mary's College and the sister school, St. Joseph's Convent. Mm -hmm. And these were the two main secondary schools back in the day. I mean, we've got a lot now, I think a little over 20 now in the country. But at the time, those were the two options, St. Mary's College and St. Joseph's Convent. And so he's written this. love letter for lack of a better word to St. Mary's College um, and I think that that's really a good book to have nice. on your shelf yes. so I'm saying Pity Con Pity, <laughs> St. Mary's College and Peanut nice um, if anybody wanted to get in contact with you um, out there in cyberspace or via email how would you go, how would we go about that okay well um, my email is d-a-w-n-n B-O-O-K-S, Books at gmail.com. And all the tags are Dawn Books, be it Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all Dawn Books, D-A-W-N-N, Books. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being Thank here on this podcast. Know. It was very engaging. I, I really enjoyed your story. Thank you so much. It was good. Thank you so much.
Hey, you're still here. Great. Stay tuned for next week's episode, episode seven, with author and editor from Barbados, Linda Dean. We put up our storytellers sign, you know, have stories, we'll tell kind of thing. And we weren't having many takers. So I went around with a sign. I went around to, you know, uh, people who were sitting and waiting and elsewhere. And um, I saw um, a woman, a mother with, with, two, with two girls about, nine ten years old okay okay and they said oh well they're actually waiting for the jumping tent to go up uh, but we'll come across <laughs> right so eventually she brought them across mm-hmm. and she said okay when the jumping tent goes up i'll come i'll come and get you and they said okay they, they were cousins they, mm-hmm. were two, they were two cousins and sarah and i read to them mm-hmm. and then we got them to design masks mm-hmm like color the masks mm-hmm. and write so that whatever words, whatever their response to what it was that we read, mm-hmm. they come up with a one-liner, mm-hmm. a, a rhyme or mm-hmm. something. And that was part of the design that went on the mask. Nice. And then, you know, I put, I attached the straws to them and they were masquerading. Mm-hmm. The jumping castle went up <laughs> and they did not notice. <laughs> the mother came back and said, girls, the jumping castle is up. They looked at the tent looked at Sarah and me and they stayed with us and hey bookworms what's going on thanks for listening to the show if you want to learn more about the podcast you can visit empresszinger.com slash the right women podcast that's empress z-i-n-g-h-a to see our growing digital bookshelf and past episodes you can also drop us a line at the right women podcast at gmail.com i've been your host and storyteller empress zinga from barbados reminding you to always believe in your magic see you next chapter <laughs>